we all know that words are important, right? And any time that we work with clients, individuals, teams, or when we're talking on the podcast, try and stay away from the phrase high performance. Uh, it's really easy to get caught up on that and talk about it in a throwaway fashion. Um, what we really talk about mostly is performance improvement. The guest on this week's podcast is a guy called Noel Slane. Noel has a stellar record in sales and sales management in software, most recently in cybersecurity software with a company called Opswat, a company that he left in reorder um, a few months ago to set up a business called FoodGuard, which he will talk about in more detail in the podcast. Um, you know, delighted to be able to share this conversation with you and probably the first time that I'm able to talk comfortably about a high performance um, sales culture. Uh, Noel was working at a threshold of about 30, 35 million sales uh, based in Tyrone, building up a team uh, locally that was a self-feeding STR team in cybersecurity from Carrickmore. Um, incredible story. He talks about culture. He talks about um, managing a, an, an inherited team and the challenges that brings and the ability to start a team from scratch and the opportunity that that gives you to create a culture from the very start. Um, some really interesting insights into managing both. Um, he's uh, really, really effervescent about sales and managing and culture. He's studied, he's very considered, he, 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 is, he makes decisions that are right for the business rather than making decisions quickly. And um, yeah, it's just a really valuable conversation. I think for anybody who's running a sales team currently, anyone who manages their own business, and for those salespeople who are interested in improving their performance, Noel shares some really brilliant um, tips and ideas that can help you um, look after your own parish as well as helping other people in your team. I hope you enjoy this as much um, as I enjoyed recording it. I always say that, but this is true. I've known Noel for a while um, as a sound fella, um, but has got some uh, brilliant guidance and advice to share. Mostly I would record using uh, Zoom um, or Teams. This time for some reason I decided to download WebEx and it took a dump on me halfway through, but I've edited together. If you come to that point, give it about two or three seconds and um, it should be pretty seamless. So enjoy the podcast and thanks for tuning in. Noel, how's the form? Very good. Thanks for... I'm Flan, I thank God, yeah. Thanks for um, joining up um, this afternoon. A kind of need a wee bit of an introduction for these people listening to this. So, um, do you want to just talk about your sales background, and we can talk about your management and football background after that? Uh, management and football background. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure about that. So, um, I guess from a, from a from a selling or sales uh, a marketing perspective, of um, I'm well, 43. Um, it's the first career I stepped into um, at the age of 22. So I did a business uh, degree and I did a postgrad in computer and information systems. And found myself um, into a technology sales role. And for 
from that day to to now, I've had uh, direct selling or uh, sales management or director level uh, role in, in technology sales, um, which is, I guess, <laughs> it's over 20 years now. So uh, it's amazing how fast the, the time the time goes. Um, the first uh, portion of that would have been local in, in Northern Ireland and Ireland. So Belfast, Northern Irish market, SME uh, focused and sort of moved up the value chain, if you like. Uh, from around the age of 30, like 43, so I guess the last 13 years, I've worked um, very much on an inter international basis for, for software companies. So I started working with Microfocus in, in Belfast, um, sort of transitioned out of direct selling into really building and managing uh, and trying to develop high-performing sales teams um, initially locally and then uh, internationally, which is something that I've, I've um, really enjoyed and um, they've been doing since subsequent. So we, you and I kind of um, first met when you were working for a company called Promisec, I think it was about six years ago, right? So uh, since then, um, you have worked for a uh, kind of pioneering cybersecurity business, um, which was really the time that you were building this really high-performance global sales team, essentially. Would that be fair to say, wouldn't it? It is. It is. So, um, and I don't feel, don't feel uncomfortable with talking about high performance because really this is, this is kind of the crux of what this podcast would always be about anyway. But, yeah. So can you explain a little bit about that uh, and talk about that company and the good things and the bad things? Yeah. Well, if I could maybe take a step back to when, when we first... Um, started speaking and, and promised like it was a very interesting um, engagement because it leads on to Opswat okay a fast uh, a fast growing uh, cyber security company promise like was, was really interesting in that um, they, they approached myself and another engineer at the time and um, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about high performance but I'm, I'm also going to talk about what what uh, bad looks like and the, the experience that I had that that really helped uh, forge my thinking and the, the change or the shift in me in terms of around how to build a high-performing team. So, um, with, with Promisec, it was a it was a VC-backed um, cybersecurity company. Uh, venture capitalists had forty million already uh, ploughed into the business, if you like. By the time I joined, so I joined year eight out of ten. Um, the company you couldn't describe it as a as a success. It was it was kind of struggling and. The reason I'm, I'm sort of um, raising it was because it gave me a fantastic insight. They were based in Israel, um, I, I'm Boston. I did a lot of international travel. Um, I became um, sort of European sales manager, director, and then um, subsequently then the global head of global sales. And one of the things that I found with that organisation was I had come in at the tail end of the development. I hadn't hired the staff. I got to see the development teams in, in Tel Aviv and in, in Israel. And the first thing that I recognised was it was a really bad culture, um, and, that, and that it sort of it seemed to have crept in for a number of years before I had taken over the role, and and you could almost describe the company as as, a, as failing, and the, the CEO and the investors just wanted to sell the technology, so it was a relatively short stint, um, but it was one of the first things I noticed was that there was a lot of excuses made. So when I, when I would visit uh, Tel Aviv or when initially when I had taken on the sales team, a lot of what they described to me was the product doesn't work, uh, marketing's not good, um, 
lots of, lots of things um, that really detracted from them taking responsibility around what they could do and how they could be successful. Um, they talked about strategy. Um, so it got very wide. So as a company, I felt they'd lost their way. And I was in at the end of this and sort of became very visible and transparent to me that um, it's, and it, I felt it was extremely difficult to shift them. And that was the one thing that I noted um, that when bad culture gets entrenched, it's extremely difficult to change, especially if it's been ongoing for a period of time. So I saw that with both the sales team and the development team, and sometimes um, it's only when you change the resources that you can actually change the culture if you can't bring them on a journey. And for technology companies, cybersecurity in particular, which is a fast-moving market, if you can't shift people quickly, then you, you have to often you know, change, change the resource to get that, that cultural shift. Um, so I saw that and was witness and was involved in all of that and was really, really challenging for me. Um, and it was uh, an experience that, that really sort of forged me thinking. I did a lot of reading and came across a lot of brilliant material with yourself around Damien Hughes at the time. I read all of his books. Barcelona Way was a, was a fantastic read for me. Uh, leader, leadership is language, atomic, atomic habits. So we were sort of reading all those books at the time thinking, this is wrong, how do I fix this? And the culture was, was very negative. But also, I guess, from, I'm going to come to Opslot now in a second, Promisec was an Israeli-centric uh, company, and Gartner did uh, a magic quadrant on business styles and types, and it was expressive-aggressive. Um, the top left is expressive-aggressive, and the Israelis are at the top left. Mm -hmm. And I think next to them were, were the French, and I was managing both. So from a management perspective, I found that I was really stretched, you know, um, Irish and British and English business cultures are around neutral. So they're, they're not very expressive and aggressive. So it was a real challenge trying to deal and motivate and go through that process. Give me an example of the daily challenge you might have had in that. What does that well, look like? I'll I, I give you an example. I had a, I had a guy that was managing. So I was, France happened to be one of the territories that um, obviously within the MIA that I was managing. I was managing a number of staff based in Paris. Um, I'll, not name, I'll not name the individual, but, but I, managed, uh, I managed a number of people in France. Some of them are okay, but the French are extremely um, adversarial. They, they will get into a, a debate. Uh, they will argue constantly. Um, they don't always take responsibility. France is a socialist country, um, and it's probably... Uh, the only really, you know, successful socialist uh, democracy, if you like, in, in Europe. Um, and they're very difficult to manage. Um, they don't always take responsibility. So what did that mean for me? It meant that a lot, of, a lot of what I viewed as sensible types of conversation around performance, around change, around activity, um, ended up in an, in an argument. And it was a continual cycle. Um, French, the French labour laws are very restrictive. So if you're in a position with... Um, a particular staff member that doesn't want to go on uh, at that transition, um, then then you're stuck to an extent because there's a very prolonged uh, potential period of change. You know whether you're looking to change that person or that resource or try to bring them on a journey. So I, I felt it really absorbing. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know that constant negative battle um, around um, trying to, to bring some of those staff along a, along a journey. And, and really, they had already had some negative experiences with the company. The truth was, some of what they were saying to me was accurate. Some of the strategy the company had had taken up until me, till I had joined wasn't good. The, the product still did have flaws. But 
I always felt that that, ex- that was exacerbated by a bad attitude. You know, it, it was what it was, but um, from from the perspective of Mans and the, the French staff, I found that a real challenge, really, really challenging for, for me. Um, I adopted a number of different strategies, so I'd often have a conversation. Um, I, I would have um, had a managerial say to, to say, right, I'm going to butt heads to see, can I, can I get some of these people to climb down? That didn't work. Then the next approach would have been, um, I would have actually thought about the one-to-one reviews, and I'll, I'll bring it very fact-based. Um, I'll listen, I'll not speak to see can I get <laughs> the conversation and the tone and progress made through analysis of data and, and a more, a more um, listening approach if you like to, to, to progress and change so I found it really challenging but really I, I felt like it really grew me and, and developed me working you know, with Israelis, particularly the France Israelis are blunt and direct, and the France are the same. So that that was that was what that looked like for me from a, from a daily perspective. But you you have a, a lot of things to play there too. You have uh, sort of competencies. You have um, empowering management. You have people that feel that they're allowed to do stuff. You have you talk about culture um, where they're allowed to thrive and survive and make their own mistakes, or whether they're micromanaged. So there's a whole lot of stuff at play there that you would. Uh, it would be hard to identify very quickly. It, it is. Um, and I think back to the, the first point was I was saying, if culture becomes entrenched, a bad culture, bad behaviour becomes entrenched, it's very difficult to get it to get it shifted. Um, and a good process, I, I, I found when I moved to Opswat, and I'll maybe touch on that, I think it was sort of the, the genesis of the question, if you don't um, have good process for managing uh, and dealing and working through change, and it's not embedded within uh, a, a team early early on, the process of bringing that change about can be really, really challenging and difficult. And that was one of the things I started to try and do. Um, I promise, I, you know, how, how can I put a framework in place that allows this person to understand that I'm here to help and that this is a safe place, and uh, that, that the performance measures that we're looking to put in place are going to help them be better. Um, so... That, that was probably the biggest. So the skill and will, as, as you talked about the person, you know, have they the skill to, uh, to do the job well? Have they the will to do it? Do they want to be successful? Do they want to go through the process of, of, of change? So sort of looking at those competencies around a person and then putting a framework for, for development um, in place, I think, were, were some of the key things that weren't in place whenever I took uh, the role over at Promisec, that it did and was able to try and implement that at Opswat from the get-go because it was a clean build. It was really, it was really on me from the start. So talk about Opswat then. So like, um, and bear in mind for the people that are listening, you're operating out of the heartland of Tyrone here. This is you're not living in Belfast or Dublin or London. You're operating out of a wee village in in Tyrone. So that uh, brings challenges and everything else. But just paint the picture of the beginning of Opswat, no? Uh, so I'll, I'll maybe go back to how I met. So Benny Benny Kearney is. Uh, uh, it sounds like Carney, which is a true name, which is Charney, C Z A R N Y. He's. Um, <laughs> I never, I never thought about that. Actually, really, it's really, it's really due um, from from Estonia originally. The guy is uh, the founder of Opswat and lived and started the company in San Francisco. So you, you could describe the the business as uh, Silicon Valley centric to start with. More recently, moved to to Tampa. So I, I met Benny at the Black Hat Cybersecurity Conference in Las Vegas. Um, they were trying to sell their software to Promisec. Uh, I met him at a, at a cafe 
um, himself and Tom Tom Mullen, which are two fantastic guys. Uh, we we struck up a, a bit of a relationship, seemed to, to to get on quite well, and then I think Benny was looking at expanding his um, European or EMEA business, as it's called, which is really from from Ireland to to the Middle East. So he he sent me a message on LinkedIn to see if um, if I was interested in, in coming on board that they wanted to, to hire a, a vice president for for the region and to, to build and to, to scale out the business for them. And I guess uh, at the time he, he reached out to me, uh, Promisac were getting acquired by the Mirror Group, um, which was, was really opportune timing because it was a tack, a tack only uh, purchase. So the, the sales and marketing teams weren't being, being retained. Um, and that really presented me with Paul an opportunity to, to do a clean build. So um, and analyzing the market across the media, where to hire, what resources, choose what was the strategy going to be uh, the customers the products it, it, it was almost like having um, a Pandora's box of opportunity that's how I saw it and it was really on me then in terms of how could I make that successful um, where do you start with that then if you've got so much to do where, where, where's the starting point within the planning for that and um, so what I, what I did was look at um, the, the first of all, I, I looked at the business. When I when I took it on, it was uh, $3.75 million across EMEA. And um, there was two other resources supporting the region. And the first thing I did was look at the install base. I always think it's important, uh, if you're in business, if you're starting fresh, look at the opportunities under your feet. Um, sometimes I think businesses get very fixated with um, onboarding net new clients. Uh, and I know businesses get really hung up on that, you know, new logos, new clients all the time, kind of get new, new customers. Take a lot of opportunities under your feet. So the first thing I did was um, I developed a matrix uh, to look at the product stack that we had in Opswat. So we, we seem to have uh, quite a varied portfolio of products. Um, so I went about the process of scoring them based on my experience. So we did a lot of travel the first uh, in the first year. And in the first few months, I started to try and build out some um, strategic intelligence, if you like, around what were the best products and what were the verticals that I was selling them into? Uh, what were the countries that had the highest GDP per capita? So I did a map of every country across EMEA on GDP per capita. So I looked at the wealth of all the countries. I then looked at the, the products and I scored them based on the interactions that I was having and the team as I started to hire them to say, these two or three products out of our seven are the winners. Here are the verticals in which I can sell them into. And here's the countries with the highest GDP per capita that we're going to have the most success. So sort of, if you like, from a business perspective, I looked at macro and then I went micro. So I looked at the, the, the macro base. If you're operating on a, on a regional um, or a local basis, you maybe don't have the, the, the luxury or, or need to do that. But... I was I was at the responsibility of looking after the EMEA region, um, and I like that type of analytical approach to to understanding the big picture, and then sort of getting down into the weeds of okay, what's the verticals, uh, where's the countries, and then thinking about what are the resources that I need to hire, and what's my route to market, which is the last thing. So I looked at our our market and decided we were we were eighty percent. Uh, direct business at the time I took the business over. That was okay for the US market because it's uniform. You don't have any language issues, you don't have any cultural barriers. And I immediately went, this looks wrong to me. Um, we need to use the channel. We need to build a channel-centric business. I took this upside down. 
to try and gain scale and to grow rapidly and quickly. And then to hire channel-orientated uh, channel team uh, across the media that I felt could then start to scale the business out. So at a really, really high level, uh, there's lots of details that's beneath some of what I've been describing that I can go into. That's, that's what it is. So sort of started at the macro factors and then looked at the, the sort of the products, the verticals, the people, and then the route to market, if you like. Um, and then started to ask the business for resources. So we started to hire people in France, people in Germany, people in the UK, um, some people in Romania, and then um, some people in, in Dubai and the Middle East, and, and started to sort of scale the business out from there. Stan, with the, the people side of it, what were you looking for when you were recruiting? That's a brilliant question, Paul. So if I, if I went back 10 years and I look at a younger version of, of Noel, I would have, I would have really looked at and, and had a strong view around academic achievement. And I would have sort of put that up at the top and said, okay, well, where'd this person maybe go to university? What, what was their achievements like um, with a high performer um, at, at college? And I had a lot of experiences over the over the ten years of hiring and firing people, and and I guess in the likes of um, Microfocus because we scaled up a team myself and a number of the other managers in, in Belfast from from virtually nothing, um, and with, with some really really bruising um, a engagements with staff because we made the wrong choices, and I personally made the wrong choices by by doing that and looking for people with academic achievement. So big thing for me after 10 years of doing that and working with some fantastic managers and, and microfocus on Promisec was I went for values and I realized that I needed to hire people that I personally could work with and that had some the similar same values to myself. You know, were they a good person? Would they be trustworthy? Were they highly motivated? And those are not easy things to, to measure. Really, really difficult to measure in a hiring process. How do you measure if someone's got a high, high performer? Um, was there was there some level or degree of humility? Um, so I would have asked questions around um, self-analysis and in, in the interviewing process uh, to try and find can I get a can I get a fit here um, of someone that I can come in and work with? Is this someone that I can develop? Is this someone that I can learn from? Also, are they going to bring things to the table that, that can help me learn and develop? So what are very very much focused on on, on values. And that might seem counterintuitive, you know, because a lot of higher managers get really fixated on a CV and they go, he was a high performer or she was a high performer that did A, B, C, D and E. And a CV, I think, is a point in time and a lot of people embellish them and not always the, tr the truth. Um, so a couple of things I would have asked for, um, I always asked questions like, can you tell me two or three traits or, char or characteristics about yourself that people who know you well would say are negative. And it really rattles people to the core because they're like, never been asked anything like that in my life before, but to me it's a deep-rooted self-evaluation question. Can you self-evaluate? And when I'm talking about values and looking to hire people like that, people who have a growth mindset will be able to answer those questions. And some of the best people I've hired can tell you those answers honestly. You know, they'll be able to say, do you know what? I'm hard to work with sometimes. Um, I'm, I'm difficult to have bad days, have a bad temper. Um, sometimes a bit, bit disorganized. Um, um, they'll, they'll not come back with, um, I'm a perfectionist. Because yeah. somebody tells you a perfectionist, they're kind of like spot out a train spotting, you know, when he's, <laughs> he's on his line of speed and he's doing the interview. Yeah. Um, 
answer, the answer always is I work too hard. I don't yeah. have a life. You know, yeah. so you're really looking for character traits and values and self-analysis. So somebody that can be honest with you about their life, their lifestyle, some of their faults and feelings. I think when I when I could find people like that in an interview, I thought that's somebody you can grow. That's somebody that I can grow with as well. And is, do you think it's easier uh, to recruit like that if you're trying to build a team that's working remotely, that's working self-contained? Because they, they have to have a lot of uh, inner drive that maybe, that, you know, they have, to, they have to have a different kind of DNA and a different makeup. And so just say inner drive, they have to be self-starters. Like it sounds like a cliched list of things, but they have to be able to put in the hard yards and motivate themselves. They do need to have that kind of growth mindset. They need to be very um, resilient. They need to have a lot of grit and determination. Do you find that easier to recruit because you're looking for people who are working remotely? No, it's, it's definitely a challenge. Um, I would have put big faith in trying to reach into my own network. Um, so I can honestly say I you know, had a lot of success in the last four and a half years in, in Opswat. It was, it was a brilliant run for me in my career. Um, 80, I think 90% of the hires were people that knew other people and were able to vouch for those character traits. Okay. Um, so we didn't go to market, we didn't look for recruiters. Um, and, and I don't mean this disrespectfully to recruiters. You know, recruiters have a job to do. Uh, their job is to sell resources, and um, you, you know their job's not to speak negatively or to tell you any of those negative character traits that you might realise after six months. You know, yeah. made, made their own decision. So, um, so we had to put a bit of great emphasis on speaking to the people within the team. Um, I was very lucky to hire some brilliant people. Um, hired a, a, a very good friend of mine, Sean Lennon, very high performer from. A microfocus on you that um, when Sean joined that he would have or, or did know um, who, who were the top performers, who were the people that had those brilliant self-directing character traits as I described them uh, and they're not easy to find so those are people that are self-motivated, you know, intrinsic motivation you, you don't need to ring them every morning to get them motivated to, to, to get them active and up, up to, to speed, the, these are people that really want to win you know, they want to be successful, you know, they want their money to hit their targets, they want to get to President's Club. Um, no, they're, they're difficult to find. They're difficult to find. I think that's why, you know, people pay up with, uh, those those people that are that are self-directing, um, highly motivated. I know uh, part of what you do is talking about identifying and finding people with those those character traits. It's not easy, really, really not easy to get to get best, to get the ones that um, are, are the winners that... Is, particularly for me and, and building a new um, a new operation and scaling it the first the first number of hires in each country for me were absolutely pivotal so they could take a, take a region on a territory uh, take guidance from me but then run uh, be, and be self-sufficient themselves so then just uh, some kind of detail in the background um the sort of people that you were selling to, the sort of level within those organisations and the verticals you were selling to, the numbers of people you had selling, and then rough numbers for success across the 12-month period? Yeah, so we, we started um, at 3.75 million, and over the course of the four and a half years that I was there, we grew to 20, 26.2 million in, in four years. It was uh, sort of meteoric growth. Um, we were the highest growth region in Opswat. Um, when when I resigned, we were the highest revenue producing region 
Um, so the US was going 17 years and we were effectively going four and we caught them in four years. So it was really stellar growth. Um, we we had that, at that stage probably had a team of around 24, 25 people between um, engineering um, and, and sales and marketing uh, at, at one stage. So it was it was a fantastic growth journey. Um, in terms of the people we were selling to, it was... It was really high level. Uh, it was very exciting. I know there's a, there's a war, in, obviously in Ukraine at the minute. We we would have sold a lot of our technology into um, military organisations, secret service, intelligence agencies, all across Europe, uh, NATO, multi-corps, northeast to the NATO unit that's based in, in Poland, um, Estonia. So they would have bought um, and been using some of our technology. Uh, I can't say what that was, but um, they they had a variety of of our different technologies. Uh, we, we sold to a lot of different uh, policing services across Europe, uh, people like Europol. Um, we also sold to a lot of nuclear power plants. So, particularly sensitive organisations, um, as, as you can imagine, cybersecurity uh, touches banking, insurance. Um, we have a lot of what we would describe as tier one banks, tier one insurance companies across Europe and in the UK and Ireland um, that they would have used um, the upside stack. So, we're ready. The, uh, the, I guess the apex of enterprise selling, we would have worked into CISO level or C-suite level. Um, purchase values, we started at around $15,000, $16,000 when I started working with uh, Opswat, and we would have um, steadily grown the average sales value up to around $40,000. But within that, Paul, we would have had uh, deals at $400,000, $600,000. Then we were into you know multi-million pound opportunities that were happening in, in year four. So we steadily moved up the food chain. Um, we would have done, done a lot of government work. Um, you know, intelligence agencies are typically censored various of government. Um, it was a very different sales motion. So our sales motions would have probably been six to 24 months. Um, some of our kiosks were installed in places like Daimler, Mercedes-Benz, and a lot of um, large pharmaceutical plants, um, you know, multi multiple site deployments. So very complex selling environment so between six months and 24 months and you went from three million to 27 odd in four years yeah that's a lot of activity so and because i kind of know the answer to this i'm kind of interested to you for you to explain how you would take that to market and what what marketing support um you would have the sales team or the field sales team would have enjoyed what that looked like, and then that leads you up to what happened in Carrickmore, which is uh, an yeah. incredible journey. Like it's just when you think of it, it's it's quite incredible. Um, so it started off, Paul, and uh, if you go back to what I just described at the start, the sort of the macro um, analysis, and then working our way, percolate this way down to what's happening on the ground. Um, we then started to hire uh, teams and look at what was the best way of networking and meeting with some of the people that operated in, in these particular environments. And so we, we started to attend a lot of events um, and our, we would have a marketing team hired that would have supported us with an events calendar. Uh, so we would have built one EMEA-wide. Now, I wouldn't have went to or let the team target uh, what I would call low GDP countries. So Eastern Europe, um, as an example, wouldn't have hired or deployed resources in Romania or, or Bulgaria. Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, they're small countries, they don't have, you know, big, um, big spend. But in the likes of Germany, France, Nordic countries with a significant wealth, we would have had a range of events that we would have attended. We would have had a marketing team there. 
um, and they would have been they would have supported us really well. So on the ground, we would have turned up to an event um, maybe over two or three days. So it involved a lot of travelling. So myself and the team and, and whoever was on the ground, we would have been there setting up, um, and then pre-event invites. We might have had um, evening meals, drinks, things like that, and 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 support of the events. So we did a lot of them prior to COVID. Um, we also would have done a lot of um, digital marketing campaigns. Um, so we would have looked at industry journals. Um, if you think of some of the industry uh, areas that we focused into, particularly government, there are spiceless government events that we would have attended. Um, the SEI is an example, so it's, it's kind of like an arms fair. Uh, it is actually an arms fair in, in London. The Excel, you know, the sell military equipment and stuff like that. So we would have looked at the route to market and the events that we needed to attend. Um, we would also done digital marketing, so everyone everyone knows knows all about that. The gov the types of government clients we would have been working on, you know, they're not on Instagram, they're not on Facebook. It's very much uh, the route to market would have been direct touch with LinkedIn. Uh, I'm a huge believer in that. I think uh, LinkedIn has a fantastic network networking tool, gives you and your teams opportunity to to reach out directly to the correct person, the correct uh, buyer buying persona. And then from a software perspective, we were always about demos. You know, could we move them into a demo where we get an opportunity to showcase the, the technology? Um, and then obviously the likes of Google AdWords, you know, for people that were, you know, I guess buy buyer ready, they're in the market researching for the types of technology that we that we supplied. So we would have had those different parts of the marketing mix, uh, if you like, Paul, the top of the top of the funnel, supporting us in the, in the, in the, from a sales perspective. From, from a sound perspective, but we would also work very closely. You know, I, I always try to get the team to focus on the things they could control and, and not to have a... I think sometimes uh, sales teams get very focused on, you know, the leads are not good or we don't get enough leads. And I, I really think um, people in a, a, in a sales or business development will need to focus on what they're good at um, and what activities that they, they can control. So um, we would have looked at a lot at account mapping. So if you manage the tier one bank, and you'd sold the one subsidiary, how many other parts of that bank can you sell to? Mm -hmm. Can you get a, ref a reference from, if you look at, say, for example, HSBC or uh, Credit Agricole, for example, uh, would have been a client of ours. You know, it's one of the top 20 banks in, in the world uh, with maybe, you know, 20 different subsidiaries. Airbus was, was a client of ours. Um, Airbus um, have, you know, over 100,000 employees and 25 different subsidiaries. So starting to map out how can we go to market and, and use LinkedIn as a, as a tool to direct touch and, and, and reach out to these people? You, um, that kind of is bringing together a whole lot of moving parts. You know, you've got a lot of stuff to, you know, single pane visibility, one dashboard with a lot of stuff going on. What was the most effective tool for you at that point? What was, what was getting you the most visibility or the most interaction with decision makers? Um, at that point, I, I would say we started to grow substantially of our existing client base. Um, the account mapping, I would describe it. So we would have looked at those tier one organizations um, strategically. Um, I would have had the team work with some of the, the partner ecosystem and start to identify the other parts within, for example, I'm, I'm using Airbus as an example because everyone knows the name, um, Airbus Helicopters. How do we get a reference or a touch point from Airbus in Toulouse to Airbus in Germany, head of procurement? So strategically looking at those accounts and, and looking to grow. So we started to grow significantly out of 
the existent large tier one accounts that we that we had. We we would have had a mix, Paul. I think thirty around thirty two percent off what what I did as a group was new logo. That was the highest in in, in Opswat. Um, I think one of the teams, the US, they were about nineteen or twenty percent. So we we definitely built a culture where the team were very good at expanding out of their existing base, but also looking about new logo acquisition. And a lot of that would have been through referrals and, and the events, which is what I talked to, to, to you about earlier. We found that uh, cybersecurity buyers went, went to those events, research, they like to look at different vendors, uh, they, they did a lot of education, uh, they're very, very bright, intelligent people, very well-educated buyer, a buyer persona. So we would have we would have found that they, those events were an excellent place to engage in. Yeah, like it's a it's a kind of a complex market, but it's a very cluttered market too, Noel, isn't it? You've got a lot of businesses making a decision on a software that solves a problem now, but doesn't solve the problem that we don't know is around the corner, and so people tend to buy a lot of. Um, I'm, I'm, no, I'm not right saying this, but they, they they're exposed to a lot of salespeople, and it's really hard to decide how you spend that budget, isn't it? It is. It absolutely is. Somebody, somebody said, describe it as shelfware. You know, they buy a product that becomes redundant. So I, I find that that was one of the big challenges for CISOs, but also for, for people like myself that are trying to engage with them. They, they had so many vendors. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of cybersecurity vendors. And one of the things that um, probably for a lot, of, a lot of business people is if you're in a, if you're in a relatively mature market space, is how do you differentiate what it is you do? How do you describe what it is you do in simple terms, particularly really highly technical technology? Um, and we find that CISOs are generally, not generally, sorry, that's a, a, an incorrect statement. Anyone that's a CISO will have a very high level of education. They'll understand IT at a, at a very deep level. However, that said, a lot of technology companies are very smart at uh, positioning the approach to cybersecurity that they take. Um, there's preventative approaches then there's companies that say, don't worry about pre- prevention because you know hackers have already breached your network and we'll help you identify where the issues are and, and sort of lock, lock down your system. So um, th- there's so many different philosophies that's very, very difficult for those people to understand. I guess for, for us in Ops, what, what, what I really tried to do was ensure that we were really crystal clear about our differentiators and what it was that made us special. Uh, so who we were, what made us unique, and who was the people we wanted to speak to. So we had a very deep level of understanding what we did relative to some of the other products in the, in the marketplace. And so they could have been speaking to three or four different vendors that did similar things. So it was a very nuanced um, engagement with large science. You had to know um, at a deep level. So we would have had a, a one-to-one sales approach. You would have had an engineer selling with a salesperson, yeah. so it was a com- very complex selling process, um, and and that deep level understanding of the of the sort of cyber ecosystem was extremely important to get get the message across to to them for them to understand what it was you did and what made you special. So this, this then leads on to the really um, take take into account everything you said. There, so you're selling a sophisticated product to a very intelligent target audience that's completely inundated with. Um, the next best thing and you know you've got to differentiate you've got to stand out you've got to resonate you've got to substantiate all that sort of stuff and then you kind of take it to uh, real back to basics a telephone call center I don't want to call it that that's what it was wasn't it yeah well SDRs yeah talk us about that because again um, 
for those people who are listening that aren't from the north or even who are from the north or who are from the island of Ireland, um, Tyrone is a hotbed of many industries, mainly engineering, manufacturing, but it's, I'm not being fair to the software sales industry in Tyrone, but it's not, a, it's not, a, there aren't many, right? So no. t- t- take the story from where you had the idea of putting together a team to operate um, as SDRs from Tyrone. Yeah, so I guess uh, as as we were growing, this is an upswat. We were we were building significant traction, and um, I guess very significant confidence within the upswat senior leadership team that um, what was happening in, in EMEA was was a uh, bucking the trend um, or, or surpassing the trends in, in the other regions. So um, one of the one of the things that I had seen work was um, and I believed could happen anywhere um, was in an SDR, which is, a, I guess, a function. Sales development reps would be a mix between marketing and, and sales. So they're they're in the in the marketplace operating off tools like LinkedIn, following up um, with emails and then sometimes uh, outreach via the phone. Um, so I, I'd seen this many times um, over the last 10 years. I'd, I'd, I'd worked with lots of different agencies. I'd used agencies in London. I'd used agencies in, in Dublin. I'd used agencies in, in Germany that were trying to develop the market for cybersecurity companies. So it was very common practice for cybersecurity companies to come to EMEA and engage a, a large um, telemarketing company like Operatics, be very well known in, in the industry spend a lot of money, they try and develop the market for you, they've got access to client accounts, the right contacts, set up demos and appointments. So I, I really wanted to try and do this in uh, in Toronto, in, in, in Carrickmore, where I'm, where I'm originally from. I just lived, lived down the road and uh, I was very grateful that Patrick Tam, my boss at the time, uh, said that's okay, I'll, I'll back you for this on a on a small scale. So he really wanted to understand about what type of tools would you put in place can you get access to language skills? Um, there's not many people in, uh, in in the middle of Tyrone that speak multiple languages, but I went about the process of, of building a business plan to show them that it could be done and we could get access to skills. Um, the experience was there definitely around the tool. Um, so what type of tools do we need to buy? Um, and then the likes of the skills required to, skill, to scale those people up um, I was very confident I had, so I, you know, pretty experienced then in terms of scaling the team up, um, coaching and developing people. Something I love doing, so I had no fear of not getting someone experienced. Uh, if I, I knew you had a willing attitude and somebody that wanted to learn, then I was willing to teach them. And um, we then went about the process of starting to hire and, and building up a, an SDR team and and carried more. Um, and they, those those people were calling all over Europe. Um, managing business internationally and they were part of over that last year that, that raised from um, 16 to 26 million so we had 10 million pounds worth of growth uh, last year and a lot of that was driven from from Carrickmore um, so we had uh, you know a couple of people sitting beside me that were, were managing our Middle East business and it was going from strength to strength, they were doing a brilliant job um, they did great experience elsewhere and we put in place or I put in place, sorry, some really good best practices to, to help the team grow rapidly. Um, that goes back to the, the, the conversation that you and I had about about culture. So it, it wasn't about me. I really tried to create an environment where everybody could 
support each other. We had daily huddles, we had scripts written, we, we did role plays every single morning uh, just to try and create excellence within the environment. And it, for me, it meant that I could bring someone in less skilled into an environment where it was okay not to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you could learn and that, that the, the environment was that people shared shared information, they shared experiences, they shared their expertise on the tools. Um, so um, I felt that it really allowed, allowed me to scale and to grow and, and, and to be a success. How many did you have working there at its peak? Uh, so we, went, we ended up with uh, with 12 people uh, um, at one point in, in Carrickmore and then obviously the business decided to to shift some some of the positions back to, to London, um, and I think there's a couple of positions went to Amsterdam, so maybe more uh, celebrity locations than than Carrickmore. But again, um, we'll reverse back to those were those um, values that were important to you recruiting your field team. Are they they non-negotiable values and cornerstones of your culture? For me, they were um, absolutely non-negotiable. I made a couple of absolutely brilliant hires. I, I hired a, a couple of people from, from Yale. I don't know if I'm allowed to mention their names. That's but, okay. You know, I had, a, had, a, had a girl from Dungannon called Veronica Chistol. Veronica's from Moldova. She speaks, she speaks five languages. She's incredible talent. Um, so Veronica joined. And one of the things that myself and Sean Lennon liked about Veronica when we met her, she was so honest, so appreciative of the opportunity. I just thought she was brilliant value set. Um, and when she came in and started working with us, it, it was very obvious that, that those were deeply ingrained traits that she had. Um, and then I hired a few other people that I, that I, that I knew um, from, from Microfocus that uh, also had those same values. Um, and each of them would say that it was a fantastic place. You know, you know, still speak to them regularly. Patricia Holmes, who's, who lives actually quite close to me, uh, she worked in a, a really high-performing environment, but come in as, as a leader of the group and, you know, really took those values on and created a fantastic place to work, um, a fantastic place to learn and a fantastic place to succeed. So we, I, I didn't know, I didn't, I would have taken longer to hire rather than, than uh, give up on those values because they were important to me. Um, that it, I think if you bring in one bad apple, as an example, it, it just it rots everything around it. You know that that person is really negative or critical, or you know they've got a high level of ego where they want to judge other people. And, uh, and I'm, I'm conscious that how this will sound, but I mean it from a good place here. Like um, you're making it sound very easy. You know this this building the team up that's you know based in all over Europe and the Middle East and doing X, Y, and Z, and, you're, and I was on some of those uh, sales huddle, you know, conference calls with you and did some work with the team in Upswat, and, um, but watch you grow that uh, boiler room, just, just to put a real bad name on it, you know, but it wasn't the boiler room, it was the antithesis of that, like it was a really harmonious workspace where you had people coming in who had this um, energy and enthusiasm about what they did, and the thing I'm trying to get across is to the people that are listening that um, those people are out there, you know, but taking somebody that's good into an organization that doesn't have a process or doesn't really fully believe in these cultural cornerstones or, you know, a belief system or sets sets about uh, standard or non-negotiables, 
that can be lost very quickly and you can be back to square one and people will be disillusioned and not want to stay or perform. And I know that from coaching people on sales, whether it's social selling, whether it's um, account-based marketing, whether it's social media, whether it's, t- it's there's none of it's easy. Like, no, it's, it's absorbing. I, I, you know, I, I have to say I probably did nine, ten hours a day for for the four and a half years that I was there, and and I often worked Sundays because I, I managed the Middle East and and, and uh, Israel, and um, it was enormous energy um, within from from my perspective. But it was around developing people, and I'd set. I sort of felt like when it set those clear processes. I think when I talked to you at the start there, I talked about Promisec, that the culture was very deep rooted and negative, and very difficult to change. But in Opswat, I was able to build that in from the start. That uh, the, the team that came in knew that I was someone that wanted to invest in them, and that my door was always open, and that. The training always happened, and the one-to-ones always happened, and the reviews always happened, and they get a chance to give me feedback. And the one question that I always ask, and I do this in the coaching all the time, is what can I do better? So I asked that question of all of the staff. So um, I, I always wanted to de-egotize the environment, that, that I wasn't superior because I'm not, and, and I'm very aware that I'm not. So I learned as much from the people that I worked with. Um, as, as they may have learned from me but the environment allowed us all to grow and the fact that I was open-minded to put those pr- practices in place and it, it was the one thing that I always adhered to so if I wasn't there I did, I did travel a lot that um, for example Patricia would ensure that that happened every morning and we recorded uh, and reviewed every day our role plays uh, so we, we, we beat on our craft every day, we practiced we never shied away from it, it became the norm uh, and I felt that the, the team, um, and, and I look back at a lot of the, the videos that we were recorded, we recorded our demo pitches and really obsessed over getting better. How do we be better? How do, how do we be absolutely brilliant at this? Um, and that sort of that feedback loop of what worked, what didn't do different, um, that I got taught in, in Microfocus really, I'd worked a treat and it just became how we were, you know, as a, as a group and, and the, the sort of the wider field team across uh, Europe. And... Um, we, we would have done that regularly. And then I, I also did the sales and, and sort of presentation training within, within Opswat for quite a while. It would have been one of the things that I drove across the team to try and sort of get the standard really, really high and consistent. There's a big um, effort, but it's big reward in, in the business because uh, high ticket sales, high value, and your growth is, is obviously rewarded very well. But you, you again, you're kind of making stuff sound really easy about the rehearsal and the practice and the repetition and the recording and the analysis of that you know it, it, teams that do well in penalty moments are the ones that have normally practiced penalty moments yeah. you know and they've practiced the rigors of um, taking free kicks not just in the first five minutes before practice they'll be shooting them 40 minutes after practice has stopped because that's when you're tired and you're called upon to bring all your energies to bear and it, this Maybe it's not just a sector thing, no, but there's loads of businesses um, that I see and sales teams that haven't got an awareness of what or how they're doing what they're doing. They they shy away from recording calls because they're afraid that it's going to be used to beat them. That's a cultural thing. That's you know, but they don't they don't they're not comfortable with video recording. They don't want to hear yeah. stuff, and. Um, 
it's uh, it's hugely important to be able to get a, a, a sort of a timestamp of where you are and the direction you need to go to improve. Like it's it's called, can you make do you make it sound very can, um, not very easy? But you had a lot of willing participants in that team in Carrickmore. You had a really good team. You recruited really well there. I did, I did, I recruited well, and I was very lucky in that you know cybersecurity um, and, and software is very profitable industry. So um, you know the people that that worked there were were paid really well, um, and and way above. You know we were we sort of paying Belfast rates um, and and uh, and Carrick more, but you know Belfast and and an international stage is still relatively competitive. Absolutely. Um, but um, those those processes just go back to what said start that process of growth is is it's easy if you do it at the start. You know when you bring people into it initially, if it's embedded as part of your your culture, I find it's extremely difficult. I know I I think I mentioned earlier of I'm doing some consultancy with um, with a Dublin-based uh, technology firm at the minute as well, and uh, one of the, one of the things that I find in, in engaging with their team is. Uh, they're they're not used to it. They're not used to exposing themselves. They're not used to growth or being challenged or or saying right present that to me. Um, it's like someone saying I can dance and my view would always be right. Let's show me and, yeah. and then and then we'll judge you uh, and we'll watch it back. And and that that can be an extremely painful process for people and also from a management perspective. If you're not used to doing it and, and you don't ingre- uh, make it ingrained, it can also be very uncomfortable for a manager the first time round to go, look, I'm going to give you a bit of feedback. Um, so I, th- I think you need a framework to make it safe so they don't feel like they're being attacked. And the words that you choose are also really important. You know, how you choose to frame the feedback. You've said that twice. Sorry yeah. to interrupt you, man. You've, you've said that twice, a safe place, a safe space. You know, I think that's really, really important. Um, that people feel that it's okay to make mistakes and not be ridiculed and laughed at and chastised and um, I, I, the world that I came from, from way back, like you made a mistake, man. It was just you know, you may start going to build your own gallows. You know, there was no there was no comfort, there was no room for it. Like and um, you possibly as a sales leader maybe inherit that stuff very quickly. Whenever you become a manager, you think that's the way it's done, and it's only yeah. now looking in on businesses and seeing how good people do what they do that you realise that. You know, it's honey and vinegar. Like you can't, yeah. you, you know, you can't keep good people um, satisfied and contented and want to come into work if they don't feel that it's first of all a really safe place for them to yeah. to survive, thrive, and flourish. You spend sixty or sixty-five percent of your life subsidizing the rest of it. It has to be like that. Yeah, and that goes back to the culture thing again. You know. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned the safe safe space. So I'm 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 saying that right without really thinking about it. So I I guess Damien Q's um, that's what maybe six or seven years ago that did you expose me to some of his material and read all his books, you know, by the Barcelona way. Um, and, I, and I loved a bit about the, the commitment culture. And, and then it sort of sent me on a path into reading other books, you know, like um, Cy Wakeman's book, No We Go, and, and, and obviously Ma- uh, Black Box Thinking, Ma- and Matthew Seed and Bounce and all of those. And one of the things that I, that I picked up on, in the book was about psychological safety, which uh, I'm, I suppose I'm, I'm referring to safe, safe space. And psychological safety underpins all good teams. That that it's, it's safe, it's okay to feel, um, and it's okay to, to express that. And that's that's a really difficult concept. And I, I have to admit, until I sort of started uh, maybe working with yourself and, and I'm, I'm working in dedicated management roles and maybe getting exposed to really high-level training and, and micro-focus, I, I wasn't aware of it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I wasn't sort of experienced or smart enough to, to know what that meant. What does that mean? 
what does psychological safe, safety mean for someone? And 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 then through through my experience management, I realised it's it's you know from a leadership perspective, it's really about and um, you creating that environment and saying it's it's okay, it's okay not to know, it's okay not to know one and maybe the the manager me personally being vulnerable, showing vulnerability, yeah. showing that you don't know and that you're okay with not knowing. Um, and then when you said that as a as a, a sort of a leadership style, then everybody else knows what well, he doesn't think he knows everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's genuinely the place that he comes from or, or saying to some of the staff, Well look, I learned something new from you today. I didn't know that. Yeah. And then that creates an environment and that's it's kinda I think it's counterintuitive to maybe how I thought management worked. Um, or, or teams work whenever I sort of started my career that was the manager knew best and Dude, they told I, you, you, never que- you never questioned them and if you got things wrong you, yeah. get told, you get told you were wrong so a really good example that, that I, I learned on that one was um, a, a guy called John Demartini and he talked about childbirth and he talked about the external audience looking in and the expectation that the parents know how to bring up the child and the child's coming in and looking up going what are you at? <laughs> Do you know? What are you doing? <laughs> You're supposed to know. And it's the, it's the expectation way back that you, probably a lot to do with the culture we grew up in where you had to, no matter what, you had to recognise authority. And authority was typically older. And so doctors, lawyers, dentists, priests, teachers were all always right. And you were very seldom encouraged to challenge that. And I think yeah. I'm probably a child of that, you know. I think that's probably because I, I I learned very very in relatively recently in the last two or three years that very thing. But um, a, a sports psychologist friend of mine talked to, talked to me in that language about something that was going on in him and he, with him, and he says, you know, you need to feel psychologically safe wherever you are. And I never never really maybe it was speaking to Gerlin as well. Uh, Gerlin's my partner, who's a. Uh, um, a psychotherapist, that those are the things that the Irish landscape didn't cater for in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. And maybe yeah. the early 2000s, and maybe as recently as last weekend, but that's another story, you know. Um, yeah. cl- clean the slate then. So um, Food Guard is the new... It's the... Yeah. T- tell me a bit about that. Uh, really interesting. So um, my obviously my background is not in the in the food industry, but I've been working on on scaling and uh, and building teams over the last um, ten years. So uh, a really good friend of mine, uh, Darren McCrory, is from Tyrone. He runs a successful uh, panel build, building business. He, he he really fits the the, the business mold of Tyrone. You know, yeah. so he's he's manufacturing panels for the Christian screening um, business, and he's a electronic uh, electronics and an IT background. Um, so we, we, we were out running um, uh, we started we did the Dublin Marathon together a few years back and um, he, he had come across an opportunity with uh, two, two guys that he had worked with in Dublin um, to, to build one of them as a 30 year veteran in the, the food safety market um, so they had, they had been through the process of developing and building um, software to help digitise um, HACCP and, and digital traceability um, processes for the food industry. Um, so one, one thing led to another and um, they, they had a product developed and, and darn and uh, we'll, we'll go back and talk about values. Um, I probably, um, you know, there's four of us, we're four equal shareholders. Um, I, I probably felt like uh, 
like I'd come in at the end of the, the project and I, I didn't deserve, um, I feel like, a, a sort of an equal share. And um, I'll, I'll never forget one of the things that, uh, that Darren said to me um, and really struck a chord. He says, hey, I really value people. And uh, I, 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 I know you and I, I value that you'll bring your bit to the table you know, when we've the software ready, that you'll be able to, to do what you did in, in Opswad and elsewhere. And uh, it, it felt like I met, I met uh, obviously, no Darren really well. He's a very good friend and, and he's very clever. Like, yeah, he was a really good engineering um, head and um, they met the other guys and it, it felt like a brilliant fit. You know, all of us had different skills. We all got along really well. There's no egos between us. And uh, it felt like, uh, it could be a really, really good opportunity. And that, that was all, all sort of happening at the same time as there was a lot of change happening in, in Opswat where the values that I really hold, hold um, dear were, were definitely, um, I felt not there any longer. There was, was big changes on, on the team and where the resources were being deployed. So um, so it started, um, I guess, three or four months ago in earnest. The software is developed and ready. We've got our first couple of customers and uh, really started trying to take, take the product to market and, and I feel really lucky that I've um, you know, had that 10 or 12 years in management and, and the experience of understanding how to scale and grow um, businesses because I've been able to take that quite quickly then with um, the, the, I've hired a, a market manager and uh, she's been really successful and, and, and she also has the values um, that, that I really hold dear so I, I feel like I've been really, really lucky in, in, the, in the first hire that, that we have, and she's, she's a brilliant girl, and she's doing a fantastic job. Um, so we'll be, be really hopeful that all of that will come together and we can start to, to, to scale the business quite rapidly. The one thing that I did pick up, I mentioned to you at Promisec, when, when Promisec did a lot of software demos, um, I realised very early on with Promisec that they had a problem. They'd invested $40 million in a product that did too many things, and their strategy was wrong. So the investors actually lost forty million, and I was part. I was part of that at the end of the process, and I I, I realised after year eight, I went as a fresh pair of eyes coming in. This product is too many things, and there's lots of specialist products out in the market. Um, and one of the things I find with Foodguard is, I don't think that's an issue. So all of the demos and all of the meetings I have, um, keep building uh, upon the opinion that. We've got a really good product, and there's a real problem problem in the market that we solve. So we'll be very hopeful that those two marry together, and, and that it's going to be successful. Good man. Um, I'm, I'm well. I know factually that you're not doing as much international travel as you were, so you've a bit of free time in your diary to pursue that love of your life outside of your family, which is football coaching. Yeah. So just uh, so far, so good. I've been uh, coaching uh, yeah, like football now for 18 years and in my own club in, in Kegmore and um, obviously within that time frame of uh, meandered till a, till a couple of other clubs um, with, with a brother-in-law of mine that um, opportunity come up to I guess to, to get involved with him and to, and to learn um, maybe from somebody that operated at a much higher level than me, which wouldn't be difficult. He operated at a higher level than most people. Like, so, <laughs> um, so um, and then um, I, I'm living in Six Mile Cross, which is just down the road from Carrickmore, and um, I was I was asked to, to, to take the Barra senior team, which is a challenge of taking on this year. Uh, brilliant club, great bunch of lads, and uh, it's been, been a brilliant experience for me so far, so we're six months into the season and uh, an intermediate level in, in Toronto, which is really competitive. 
So a lot of stuff that we've just talked about, we've spent about the last hour talking about, is relevant to to that side of your life too. When you're talking about non-negotiables and cultural values, and you know, for fear of quoting legacy and sweeping sheds and all that sort of stuff, you're looking at creating a nucleus of people that will kind of leave the ego outside and be authentic for seventy odd minutes and be themselves and do whatever it takes. If I, if I can, I've, I've certainly tried tried to, to start to do that. I'm, I'm very, very lucky in, in that um, um, I've, I've a really, really outstanding management team that, that's helped me out, local local men that actually, you know, fit, fit that, uh, that building those values really well. They're, they're great, great football men, but also great people. Um, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a huge starting point when you have a, yourself and the rest of the management team um, all with, with similar values, and I have to I have to say, I've been in other clubs where maybe there are, you know, there's sometimes there's bigger personalities that are more difficult to, to manage. I, I certainly haven't seen that in uh, in in, in Berra. Um, they've been they've been uh, they've been very good so far. So I can't I can't I can't complain at all. I mean, that's genuine. No, I don't, I'm not going to push you any further on that, man. It's uh, um, here. Listen, thanks very much. Uh, that's really uh, really brilliant to get your time. We're busy and. Um, there's a lot of stuff there to uh, to kind of uh, digest, and I hope people get the same value that that I, I've got out of the conversation. Though, if people um, want to check out Foodguard, what's the website? It's www.foodguard.ie. Okay, and you're on LinkedIn, Noel Slane. If people want to reach out and connect up with you and all that sort of stuff, absolutely, absolutely. I leave all the details at the bottom of the notes on YouTube and. Spotify and all that, all that sort of stuff. So, man, thanks very much for. Thank you, Paul. Brilliant. It's been uh, been deadly, and I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Take care.